We know you're anxious to get to the ballistic episode part two in Jamie's case, but as you know, a lot has been going on and we wanted to take some time to give you a little background on what led to the upcoming documents hearing, especially since it's coming up so soon. And please, if you're in the Illinois area, join us on September 8th at 1.30 Central Time in Bloomington, Illinois, at the McLean County Law and Justice Center for these very important arguments. A lot of you have asked for an update on the recent motion filed, and we're definitely going to record on Sunday about the motion specifically. So if you have questions, feel free to post them on our social media, email, or leave a voicemail on snowfiles.net. So right now, we have two things going on in court. One is the DNA motion, which has been before the court for years. And the other is the discovery motion for the documents that were never disclosed to Jamie. In this episode, we're going to focus on the aspects of this case that led to the request for the discovery. Jamie started filing FOIAs while he was sitting in McLean County Jail awaiting sentencing, but the state was non-responsive. After he was sentenced, he continued to file FOIAs from Stateville Prison. I have a stack of FOIAs he filed, and it's heartbreaking. For example, while he was in Stateville, several of the responses stated that he was free to view the documents at the McLean County Courthouse between the hours of 8 a.m. and 4 p.m., knowing full well that he couldn't go to the courthouse to view any documents because he was in prison. It was ridiculous. Frankly, it pissed us off. So in 2011, we started filing our own FOIAs. At that time, Jamie only had less than 900 pages of discovery. It was turned over to him after he went pro se around 2006 or 2007. The first FOIA we filed was for the mugshots of Danny Martinez, picked out the night of the crime when he said, it's between these two. And Gutierrez agreed with one of those mugs that Martinez picked, neither of whom were Jamie Snow. We did get about six other pictures from that array, but we're not convinced those were all the pictures presented to Martinez and Gutierrez. That was the first time Jamie ever saw those mugshots. Can you imagine? And we still don't know how. The people Martinez and Gutierrez picked out were cleared. They've not turned over any police reports that refer to this issue. And honestly, it took us forever to find out the names. And as we soon learned, the Bloomington Police Department was not very forthcoming with FOIA responses. On August 7, 2012, Ray's wife, Pam, filed for the entire case file in person at the McLean County Courthouse. They told her it would take them six months to a year to comply because everything was on paper. When there was no result, by August 8, 2013, Pam went to the McLean County Courthouse on that day and asked for the case file. When they informed her that it was not available, she directly went to Springfield and complained about the issue that same day. Suddenly, they made it available, but it was heavily redacted and kind of nonsensical. 
We continue to file FOIAs over the years with multiple agencies, as well as making multiple requests from different individuals for the case file. That's when they started what we call data dumping us. It didn't seem to matter if we requested one item or multiple items. They would just send us the entire file. But oddly, each response seemed to have different items redacted. So we were able to start piecing things together that way. And through all of this, we started seeing nuggets of critical information that Jamie said wasn't included in his discovery, things that he had never seen before. Remember, Jamie had only received less than 900 pages of discovery and about 30 audio tapes of interviews. So we started again, getting specific with the FOIAs, and we continue to this day. But let me tell you, when we started, they would send responses with page after page completely blacked out. And a reason in Illinois for denial is same request by one person. So we really had no choice but for multiple people to make a request so that they couldn't deny for that reason. From 2011 to 2015, we filed over 70 FOIAs. We had gotten a lot of information, but when you get information like that, it just leads to more references that we hadn't seen to documents or tapes or interviews, and we just weren't getting the whole story. In 2016, Matt Topic from Lovey and Lovey took our case, and Ray and I sued the city of Bloomington for failure to respond properly to FOIA requests. For the next five years, we would go back and forth with the state during this process, all the while getting more information but never all of the information. Upon attorney advice, Ray and I waived civil fees early on as an offer of good faith. We weren't concerned about civil penalties, which I think last I looked were a minimum of $2,500 per instance. But Jamie felt like that would take the teeth out of the fight. In retrospect, I think maybe he was right or It could have been that they would not have been as forthcoming as they were if we would have kept the civil penalties alive. We landed up getting some great information, though, and about 70 tapes. And Lovey and Lovey settled for $20,000 in attorney fees. But the most important thing to us was item number one of the agreed order. Defendant, City of Bloomington, was found to have improperly withheld certain records from plaintiffs pursuant to the Freedom of Information Act. This is what we knew all along. And we also knew they still hadn't given us everything, even after all of this. But a judge actually put it in an order and put it on paper that they did improperly withhold records. We need to make one thing clear. The FOIA lawsuit has nothing to do with the discovery motion. They are completely separate issues, which we'll get into next week. But the FOIA efforts do bolster the argument for discovery. The following are just a few of the many items we've discovered that were withheld 
from Jamie prior to trial. In Tina Griffin's closing arguments in 2001, she made a huge point about Jamie never giving an alibi until he was arrested. What we know now through FOIA is that when Jamie took the polygraph in 1994, which he passed, he told the polygrapher that he was at home with his family on Easter Sunday, 1991. The polygrapher worksheets were not disclosed to the defense prior to trial. That could have been used to argue Griffin's assertion that Jamie was making up an alibi at the last minute after he was arrested. Jailhouse informant Bruce Rowland was questioned several times on the stand about when he first contacted law enforcement about Jamie's alleged confession to him, even by Tina Griffin herself several times. She made it crystal clear by her repetitive questions that he never contacted anyone from law enforcement before he was arrested for yet another DUI in 98. Now we know there were letters exchanged between Griffin herself and Roland while he was in prison in 1994, in which he talked about the William Little homicide and he implicated Jamie Snow. And we also know that Detective Crow visited him in prison to question him. But Bruce said, sorry, I couldn't give you more information, but I'm willing to work with you in the future or something like that. But where's the police report about that visit? Detective Crow was meticulous about documenting interviews, yet that report is still missing. We don't know what it says. We don't know what Roland said, who he implicated at that time. But he did write back and say, sorry, I couldn't give you more information. So... You know, that would have been really important to impeach Rowland's testimony. We have Karen Strong on wiretapped recordings with Bruce's wife saying that she could remember what she or Mark McCowan did on Easter Sunday in 1991. Just a few short months later after those wiretaps in 1999, she went back to the police after she testified in the grand jury. And her mental clarity was astonishing. She seemingly remembered everything about that night, completely contradicting her previous reports. If Jamie had this evidence, he could have impeached Karen's testimony. Recall, after Karen testified, her husband got a sweetheart deal on multiple charges. Ed Palumbo testified that Jamie confessed the crime to him as they were passing each other in cars on a street, going opposite directions. And his girlfriend testified that she was in the car with him and heard the word paper. That was all the state needed to corroborate Ed's story. But then on Shannon's 1999 recording that was never disclosed to Jamie, Police ask her if she was in the car with Ed, and she says no. They asked her point blank, were you in the car with Ed when that happened? And she said no. He told me about it later. She had the same story for nearly a decade, even as late as 1999, within a month of testifying. Again, the first time Jamie had knowledge of that recording was during the FOIA lawsuit. 
Jamie could have used her recording to impeach her testimony. And we can't forget about the newly discovered memo where the police officer states there was no way either of them made an ID because he looked out the window and couldn't identify people he actually knew that were across the street at the crime scene. He also said he interviewed both of the Luna boys separately and there was no way that there was a credible ID. We don't have any police reports or information on those interviews either. We have no interviews with Juan Luna. It would be interesting to know what he said. The list goes on and on, as you well know from season one. But these are the reasons the documents are so important. 8,000 documents withheld. If we've gotten this critical information through FOIA over the years, probably mostly by accident, imagine what's included in those 8,000 documents. I think what people need to know about this episode is not just that we're trying to show you exactly what happened with the discovery materials, with the FOIA lawsuits, and all of our years of filing FOIA requests. This is important that we, we show this stuff to you guys. But it's also important for maybe someone out there who has a family member or a loved one or somebody that's in the same position that I'm in right now. Maybe it'll help give them a roadmap to find the things that are missing in their cases. It's really important. We could never do what we're doing without the help of people out there who believe in us and support us. And the only way that we can give back at this time is to kind of give some advice and give people a a roadmap to how to exercise the Freedom of Information Act and get information in those cases. I think it's important for us to try to help, you know, other people out there that are are living the same nightmare because I, I feel like now... I can honestly say that if it's a murder case, the state's going to withhold something. It's just going to happen. You know, you just you just have to figure out how to find it. And, and I think you do a really good job, and Bruce and Leslie do a really good job of showing that, you know, in this case, it wasn't oversight and it wasn't accidental. All of the stuff that's been withheld from us, it was concentrated. It was deliberate. These are pieces of evidence that absolutely affected the credibility of the evidence the state was putting on and the witnesses' testimony that they were putting on. This case rose and fell on people's credibility. There's no confession. There's no there's no DNA. There's you know, there's there's nothing like that in this case. So it completely hinged on witness credibility and everything that they withheld, suppressed, destroyed goes absolutely to the credibility of the witnesses. So it wasn't an accident. It wasn't oversight. It was deliberate. And my personal advice to anybody out there that may be uh, suffering this the same nightmare is, man, don't, don't stop digging, you know, keep filing those FOIA requests and retooling them and changing them up and just don't quit. Just keep going and 
sure you get what you're looking for. We think it's a great time to rewind and listen to season one, episode 20, the highlights of the closing arguments. I know this is an extra long episode, but it's really good and extremely relevant to what we are trying to achieve at this critical juncture in Jamie's case. It's really important to us that you understand this issue and how it ties into the motion for discovery. And while you listen, keep in mind that Tina Griffin knew this evidence was withheld the entire time she's speaking to the jury and making her case to convict Jamie. She's lying to the jury, she's lying to the judge, and she's lying to the court. Justice demands and the evidence supports beyond a reasonable doubt a verdict of guilty of first-degree murder. Injustice Anywhere presents Snow Files, the wrongful conviction of Jamie Snow and how they got away with it. Snow Files, Episode 20, The Truth Never Changes, Closing Arguments. The mission of the Snow Files podcast is to expose the misconduct of the state's attorney's office under Charles Renard. It is not our intention in any way to disparage the current state's attorney's office or the Bloomington Police Department. In our justice system, regardless of our laws, prosecutors have free reign to do whatever they want and are currently at the heart of the problem when it comes to the need for justice reform. They have far too much power and very little oversight, and they are almost never reprimanded for misconduct. In fact, in many cases, they become judges or move on to other lucrative positions. In this episode, we hope we will give you a feel for being in the courtroom for the nearly 150 pages of closing arguments in Jamie's trial. We hope you will take the time to read them in our document section on the podcast. Reenactment of the first assistant state's attorney, Tina Griffin, is portrayed by Leslie Perez. And Jamie's trial attorney is portrayed by Bruce Fisher. At this time, I'd like to ask you to consider this photograph of Bill Little, and then consider the following quote from Willard Galen. When one person kills another, there is immediate revulsion at the nature of the crime. But in a time so short as to seem indecent to the members of the victim's family, the dead person ceases to exist as an identifiable figure. To those individuals in the community of goodwill and empathy, warmth and compassion, only one of the key actors in the drama remains to whom to commiserate. And that is always the criminal. The dead person ceases to be a part of everyday reality, ceases to exist. She is only a figure in a historical event. We inevitably turn away from the past toward the ongoing reality. And the ongoing reality is the criminal, trapped, anxious, now helpless, isolated, bewildered, badgered. He usurps the compassion that is justly his victim's due. He will steal his victim's due. He will steal his victim's moral constituency along with her life. Based on the evidence you have now heard over the last two weeks, 
you now know that such an argument is an attempt by the defendant to steal the compassion that is justly Bill Little's due. Don't forget or be distracted as to who the victim is here. Rather, you're going to remember who the victim is, Bill Little, so that you do not ever let this defendant get away with trying to steal the compassion and the justice that is due to the one and only true victim in this case, Bill Little, not this defendant. How can I be charged when I wasn't the one with the gun? The defendant has testified here in this case that he wasn't talking about the murder case when he said that. And Bernard Eady and Thomas, in fact, testified that they were talking about the murder case. You will ultimately decide who to believe. The law of accountability makes it clear to you that it makes no difference in your verdict whether he is a shooter or whether you ultimately think he played the other role of an accomplice. I suggest to you that the evidence in this case speaks loud and clear as to who pulled the trigger and who fired the fatal shot that ended Bill Little's young life. And that evidence proves to you that it was the defendant who pulled the trigger. That evidence came only because of the statements that this defendant made to others. You are not here to concern yourself with what the evidence has been, may have been, or will be against Mark McCowan and Susan Powell, if they have ever been, will be, or are on trial themselves. Consider that one frequent argument can be referred to and described as the pick-and-shake method. You can't really believe this evidence, so the reason goes, so you shake it loose of all its connection to any other evidence, and then you try to say, oh, by itself, standing alone, it means nothing, so we'll just throw it out. It doesn't mean anything. I suggest to you that if you engage in that kind of picking and shaking, you're going to be distracted from considering the reasonableness of that testimony considered in the light of all the evidence in this case, and that's what you're required to do. There are several facts which support why or how Carlos Luna could have seen what he described to you, but the first thing you need to realize is not how, but whether he did, in fact, see what he said he saw. And when you consider the reasonableness of his testimony, considered in the light of all the evidence in this case, the stunning reality is that he did see this defendant, and the defendant did admit his role in the killing of Bill Little to 12 different people. But if you are asked to conclude that because we don't know with certainty how Luna did not see Martinez, we can't believe he saw the defendant, then such an argument has to be regarded as nonsense. We know, based on all the evidence, that the defendant was there, that Martinez was there, that Luna was there, and that Officer Pilo was there. So if the defendant is suggesting through his cross-examination even for a second that these witnesses did not see what they said they saw because they didn't see something else, then you should recognize that argument as tortured. It's part of that pick and shake that I've described earlier. Someone here in the jury room may argue you can't believe those identifications. As I told you before, they're going to try and shake them loose from all their context. They'll tell you you can't believe Martinez's identification because he previously failed to identify the defendant. So they're going to try to shake loose the validity of those identifications. But if anyone attempts to make that argument, they would be asking you to ignore the obvious. This case does not depend on one single piece of evidence. You have to put each piece of evidence together. Look for the cooperation, which is there abundantly in this case, and make your decision based on the evidence in total. Cooperation, look for it. That is what helps you determine what the truth is in this case. 
Does Gerard or Gutierrez provide corroboration for Martinez's and Luna's identifications? Absolutely. Despite the fact that Gutierrez, who was closer than either Luna or Martinez, to a man at the station that night, despite the fact that he gave a description of a man inches taller than either Luna or Martinez, and despite the fact that he described the dark jacket that the suspect was wearing a little differently as a leather motorcycle jacket, not a trench coat or a spring coat, and despite his description of this person wearing an earring, as he recalls, and some description of a fresh scratch mark on his face, he still identifies with Luna's and Martinez's identification. They all describe a man with light brownish blondish hair, jacket, and baseball cap. That's the sketch that Gutierrez assisted in producing, and compare it to Exhibit 21, the sketch that Martinez produced. I suggest to you that there are remarkable similarities in the facial features and the styles. And then take a look at the defendant's photographs from February of 91 and April of 91 and compare them to Exhibit 22. I suggest to you the similarities between them and the Gutierrez sketch are stunning. But again, I recognize it's all in the eye of the beholder. And some of you won't see it that way, while some of you will. This defendant thought the composite from the little case looked just like him. And the defendant was so concerned about that composite that he told his friends and acquaintances to take down that composite. Indeed, the defense counsel specifically told you in opening statements a couple of times, most of the state's witnesses we are going to hear from are rapists, robbers, thieves, and dopers, and the state is going to ask you to believe them. There were several state's witnesses who had prior convictions. And were you surprised? No, because we told you that up front before we even put them on the stand. But what was it that defense counsel forgot to tell you up front in his opening statement? He just happened to neglect to tell you, oh, those robbers, thieves, and dopers, we've got a few of those too, who are going to testify for the defendant. And you found out that some of the witnesses aren't the only ones who had prior convictions. You found out that the defendant himself had a prior conviction for obstructing justice. But you didn't hear about that up front by the defense. Maybe because they realized the inconsistency and the contradiction of saying you can't believe people with criminal records like thieves, dopers, and robbers. And then in the next sentence, having to admit that, well, we too have got a few of these people, including the defendant. Maybe he realized you can't have it both ways, can you? Looking at the state's witnesses as a whole, it's astonishing that so many people could have gotten it so wrong if you don't believe them. Looking at them individually, you should consider some of the small, intimate details. Some of them true some of them part of the defendant's most revealing lies. And you need to look for the revealing, telling details, the ones that tell you that a witness is telling it the way he heard it. The evidence in this case reveals a struggle between the truth and falsehood, between the need to deny and flee from the truth versus recognizing the unmistakable facts as they have emerged over the last nine and a half years. Brandy Howard had a need to deny the significance of what he had told the police. You will remember how he struggled with Mr. Renard during the examination. He had a need, perhaps out of friendship, to back off the truth. And we know it is the truth because he fought so hard against it. He fought so hard to lie about it. You don't get that kind of detail and that kind of facts from a lie. No liar is going to make up those kind of details. And nobody is going to make up a story like that. First, they tried to ridicule Mr. Gaddis for his religious beliefs. They attempted to belittle his choice of church. And then they continued to belittle his role in the church. And the second thing they tried to do was trash Gaddis by calling his half-brother to the stand. 
Bill Gaddis, a man with no criminal convictions, a man who has never been sent to prison, a man who believes in God, is a man with a bad reputation for truth and honesty? Tammy Snow is another example of the need to deny and the need to run away from the truth and the need to lie. She testified on direct examination, apparently for the sole purpose of attempting to give this defendant an alibi. They all agree that this encounter happened. Ed is telling the truth about that. But it's just this defendant and his wife who say that the defendant said to Palumbo, I read about you in the paper. But the defendant, even himself on direct examination, you'll recall, can't remember why he would have said that, doesn't know why he said it. And I'd ask you, where is the logic in that scenario happening as the defendant and his wife would have you believe? And how is it that Ed Palumbo would know how to say the words, boom, boom, mimicking the two shots that were fired at Bill Little? He went for cigarettes at the station, got into an argument with the clerk, went back later to get his cigarettes to take care of business, and he shot the kid, took the money, and then they left. These witnesses are telling you the truth, and in spite of their terrible criminal record, you know that because of the tiny details how they corroborate each other. Every one of you knows you cannot incriminate yourself unless A, you were there, and B, you were involved. In June of 91, there was an in-person lineup down at the jail, and you've heard repeatedly how this defendant refused to participate. He was visibly upset and shaken. These are not the actions of an innocent man. Rather, that is circumstantial evidence of the defendant's consciousness of guilt. The defendant would like you to believe that those were not the actions of a guilty person, but rather they would be actions of someone innocent who was concerned with being misidentified. When this defendant has a reason to run, he runs. When he has a reason to hide, he hides. And when he has a reason to lie, he lies. His flight from the police and his lies to the police are further circumstantial evidence of his consciousness of guilt. Innocent people don't run. Innocent people don't hide. And innocent people don't lie every time they're approached by the police like this defendant does. He had a steady scripted plan of attack for fleeing from the truth of his guilty words and actions during his direct examination. Number one, if it hurts, it must be denied. Number two, if it's undeniable, admit it, but put a spin on it. And number three, if it doesn't hurt, it's okay to admit it. And the fourth one is when you're denying it, call them a liar. And if you can't call them a liar, call them mistaken or confused. Remember. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when we first practice to deceive. Because how forgetful are you when you list a witness on your list of witnesses that is to be given to the prosecution, presumably to help your case, and you have forgotten that she was one of the ones to whom you test drove this perfectly stupid lie about figuring out who did the murders. And yet there it is, a lie which points us unerringly to the truth, the truth he was most frightened of having to face. And it's going to be your responsibility to make him face that truth. The defendant is indeed cunning. He's actually smart in a conscienceless kind of way. He knew which witness to label as liars, which ones, which incidents to say didn't happen, and which incidents happened that had innocent explanation, which witnesses misunderstood him because he can find a plausible way to explain how they could be liars. But he couldn't keep his lies straight. And this defendant, for all his effort, for all his tap dancing and verbal slithering, he just can't get away from the simple fact that they heard what they heard, and you can't get away from the simple fact that they saw what they saw. But over time, enough people have overcome their fear of this defendant, 
their fear of being involved, their fear of their God. And they have now finally told you the truth. It's a remarkable odyssey. It does not happen in every case. And now it is your part to take that truth and make it into a verdict of justice for Bill Little, his parents, his friends, the neighbors around the Clark gas station, for the entire community, everybody who was traumatized by the events that happened on March 31st, 1991. It isn't easy work being involved. But now it is your work to carry on. We trust you and we urge you to see that justice is done in this case for everyone. Justice demands and the evidence supports beyond a reasonable doubt a verdict of guilty of first-degree murder. I'd like to leave you with this one final quote from Daniel Webster from the 1800s when he gave his final summation in a murder trial. A sense of duty pursues us ever. It is omnipresent like the deity. If we take ourselves to the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, duty performed or duty violated is still with us for our happiness or our misery. If we say the darkness shall cover us and the darkness as in the light are obligation, our obligations are yet with us. We cannot escape their power nor fly from their presence. They are with us in this life, will be with us at its close. And in that scene, of inconceivable solemnity, which lies yet farther onward, we shall still find ourselves surrounded by the consciousness of duty to pain us whenever it has been violated and to console us so far as God may have given us grace to perform it. We pray that God will give you the grace to perform your duty as you deliberate this case. The defendant. Jamie Snow, in this case, is innocent. Call it a presumption. You can call it whatever you want to. He is innocent. He's innocent right now. He was innocent all through Miss Griffin's very eloquent and well-planned address to you. Neither opening statements nor closing statements are evidence. And any statement or argument made by the attorneys, which is not based on the evidence, should be disregarded. What I believe, what Mr. Renard believes, what Miss Griffin believes, that's not evidence. That's what we think, and that's what we believe, but that's not evidence. And most of that testimony, you got to decide whether to believe it or not. I don't know what happened here. I wasn't a witness. I don't even know where I was in 1991. Miss Griffin wasn't a witness to any of this. So we don't know. We can't help you. You have to decide if you believe the person and, if so, how much, if at all, of what they say you believe. There is in this case no physical evidence, and I think the state pretty much conceded that. Your job is going to be a lot more difficult because you have to focus upon whether you believe the people who have been talking to you. Miss Griffin didn't want me to engage in what's called the pick-and-shake technique. I've never heard of that, but if in fact it's paramount to examining all of the evidence, that's exactly what I'm going to do. She can call it whatever she wishes to. Can you imagine how many, most of these witnesses, how many things had happened to them? How many things they'd seen? How many conversations they had had over the space of one, two, five, six, seven, eight, nine years? And that all goes into your head. So unless you've had some special reason 
to keep intact and preserve and constantly reflect upon their conversations. It's going to be stored away. Who knows where? And who knows whether it's going to be accurate when it comes out? The suspicious stranger had his own cigarettes and indeed lit one and began to smoke it, putting the pack that he had took his cigarettes out of back in his pocket while he was in the station. Now, isn't the state's belief that in fact, if the suspicious stranger was Jamie Snow, then in fact he didn't have any cigarettes? That's why he was there? That's why he and Bill Little got into some sort of argument? Well, the suspicious stranger had his own cigarettes. So what do we make of that? Gutierrez didn't pick him out of the lineup. Gutierrez can't really say it was anybody. Jamie Snow is six feet tall. Everybody has got him too short. Luna, Gutierrez, and Danny Martinez. They all have him too short. Mr. Martinez failed to pick Jamie Snow out of the lineup. Do you remember that? You've just robbed the place. You're wanting to make a getaway. You're on foot. You'd be running. But you're carrying a cash tray under your coat, whether it's a long trench coat or a motorcycle jacket. What's in a cash tray? Ladies and gentlemen, coins, coins are loose in that cash tray. So this guy is carrying a cash tray, according to Luna, with one hand in a pocket, according to this guy Martinez, with two hands. Where are the coins going? Well, if you're carrying a cash tray under your coat, aren't the coins going out the bottom of your coat and onto the ground? So what evidence did we hear from our crime scene investigators that the coin trail was coming from the station? We didn't hear any suggestion of a coin trail. I guess we can conclude is simply that whoever it was who came out of the station wasn't carrying a coin tray under his coat. There is no evidence that a person was carrying a weapon. I was somewhat chagrined to hear that apparently the whole place wasn't fingerprinted. It wasn't even footprinted. They didn't even bother printing the underneath of the counter where the panic button was. Who pressed the panic button? Pilo, if you'll recall, a trained observer. And while he said he had his mind on many things, you can bet first and foremost when he's approaching a business that he's just received a report on of a robbery in progress. What's one of the things he's certainly looking at? The door of the business to see if anybody comes in or goes out. Nobody comes out. There is no one else in the parking lot. Nobody came out of the business. So what's the bottom line with these eyewitnesses? They're wrong. What do we look at when determining whether to believe a person? You look at what they did to preserve their observation, whether it was something they saw or whether it was something they heard. By that I mean, did they write it down? Did they tape record it? Did they preserve their observation and their memory? Years went by, and none of these witnesses preserved in any way whatsoever anything that they claimed Jamie Snow said to them. You know, like the onset of winter and squirrels storing nuts, Many of the witnesses in this case took the information that they've spewed forth in this courtroom and they've sat on it. They've stored it. They've hoarded it. They decided for their own reasons, I'm not going to get involved. I'm going to save this nugget. Maybe this will come in useful later on. The notion that in fact 
there isn't a direct relationship between criminal convictions and inability to tell the truth or lack of worth as a reliable witness is ludicrous. What would you do to trust them if you came across them in your own life? Would you give them your car keys and just say, here, bring my car back whenever you want? How about babysitting your kids or your grandkids? Would you allow any of these state witnesses to take grandma to the grocery store and then to the park for the day with her wallet full of money? I don't think so. Sheer number of he said witnesses in this case, I think raises a red flag, none of whom appeared until the cops started literally beating the bushes. Ed Palumbo, he had three convictions. Let's see, William Moffat, the one night at Joliet Witness, as I call him, he had three convictions. Don Roberts had three. Then we have Bruce Rowland, and he comes in with four. Now, if I've got everybody, let's total that up. There is 42 convictions, serious criminal convictions, for the he said witnesses in this case. You guys decide what you wish to make of that. How many state witnesses do you trust with the truth? Well, if you run them all through this analysis, I think you're going to come up with that one, another zero. Are these the actions of a guilty man with a guilty conscience? Or are those the actions simply of someone who is scared? What would he be afraid of? The system not working in the courtroom full of words, 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 words. That's what the state's evidence consists of. Just words. He was on the stand for six hours, far longer than any other witness in this multi-week trial. Miss Griffin interprets his performance on the stand as that of a cunning, was the word she used, deceitful, weaver of webs of lies, a plotter. He's got it all thought out, but he makes mistakes. Ladies and gentlemen, you had six hours to look at Jamie Snow on the stand. That's not the only conclusion you can draw. He impressed me through his demeanor, through his speech as a sincere individual, who, yeah, perhaps has made some, some mistakes over the years, but he is scared to death. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I won't waste any time picking and choosing of the state's he said witnesses. All of them were lying. That's my belief. If you believe Jamie Snow and I submit that you have every reason to, then the state's witnesses will, in your mind, be put in their proper place. Jamie Snow is credible. Jamie Snow, I believe, has been caught up in a web of words from the state's witnesses. We've seen a whole production here of all sorts of things that the state believes, and that is exactly what he was afraid of and has been afraid of for the balance of 10 years. You look in this case at the hard evidence, the reliable evidence, and you're going to find that there is a real dirt. There really is a lack of reliable evidence in this case. This case covers the better part of 10 years, and ladies and gentlemen, there are gaping holes in it. And the only thing you're going to have, I submit, when you get back in your jury room to fill those holes in is guesswork. Keep in mind, you cannot guess when you deliberate. You've not heard me take the position that, well, there is no evidence. There is plenty of evidence against him. It's bad evidence. Some evidence does not equal proof beyond reasonable doubt. 
Do not concern yourself overly with doing justice for the victim, the victim's family, and those he left behind. This is a terrible thing that has happened. There is no question about that. But the justice you need to do and the duty you need to recognize in rendering a verdict, no matter how comfortable you may be with it, is a duty to all of us. We all deserve justice. Not just Jamie Snow. Not just Bill Little. Not just the prosecutors. Not just the judge. Not just the people of the state of Illinois. But the reason it's important that you do your job and do it well is because we as citizens, we take a lot of comfort in the fact that when our institutions work, they make us feel safe. If you decide that there is reasonable doubt, even if you're not comfortable, even if you think he might have done it, even if you believe he might have done it, as the state does, justice requires not guilty. If you find that you don't know what the situation is, then ladies and gentlemen, I submit to you that in fact, that's a not guilty because that means reasonable doubt still exists. And if in fact, justice is to be done for all of us in this case with this evidence, I respectfully ask you that you return a not guilty verdict. Thank you. And I just want to briefly say that I find it a little bit ironic, if you will, that defense counsel spent so much time on his closing talking again about evidence and the lack of physical evidence, and it wasn't here in this case. When it was his cross-examination, his rather lengthy cross-examination of Ed Cowell, who so well explained why there might not be physical evidence, because as you recall, he had Ed Cowell explain that if a person is wearing gloves, they won't leave fingerprints if they don't touch the surface in a certain way. They won't leave fingerprints. If they don't have the right chemical makeup, they're not secretors. They won't leave fingerprints. And if the suspect wasn't wearing any shoes or all the other multitude of explanation that Mr. Cowell went through at defense counsel's request that explained why there isn't any physical evidence so that it's not a big mystery there. So I suggest to you that you would be doing a great disservice if you do what counsel would like you to do, which is to go where the evidence isn't. Because if you do, you will lose sight of the truth, and the truth is always where the evidence is. But both of the state's supposed witnesses said the suspect was wearing tennis shoes. If you are going to look long and hard who sat on important critical information in this case, then I would suggest to you, from the defendant's perspective, that you need to ask the question, who sat on the most critical information to the defense for the longest period of time? And I think that answer is quite obvious. This defendant, because he sat on his critical information for his defense for over nine and a half years, and that would be his alibi. He sat on it for nine and a half years. If indeed this defendant had not committed this crime, he really had an undisputable alibi. Wouldn't you have heard about it before this trial? Think about it. How can you be saying, I'm a suspect in this murder. I have an alibi. I know where I was at. I was nowhere near the Clark Station. I was with my wife at home and go talk to her. She'll back me up. Never heard those words come out of this defendant's mouth at all. Quite the contrary. What you heard him say instead was, what is going to happen to me if I know something about this murder? In Jamie's polygraph worksheet from a polygraph that was taken in 1994, 
He said he was at home with his family during the time of the crime. The state hid that evidence. His story never changed. Well, I suggest if you truly thought that composite didn't look anything like you, and the reasonable inference as to why this composite was going around was because somebody might have seen the suspect, then wouldn't he welcome the opportunity to participate in that lineup? If he didn't look anything like this, he ought to be feeling pretty darn good. This is what they think the person looked like, and it doesn't look like me. Put me in the lineup. Put me in there. Let those people see. See that it wasn't me. It makes no sense. Jamie's attorney recommended to Jamie that he not stand in the lineup because of the misidentification issue. But defense counsel wants you to say what? That story doesn't work because Mr. Gutierrez saw somebody inside with a clerk arguing about cigarettes? And he wanted you to remember that Mr. Gutierrez saw that person light a cigarette and take a package out? Then obviously he couldn't have been there to buy a pack of cigarettes or get a pack of cigarettes, could he? Well, I suggest to you that such an argument ignores what anybody who has ever been around a smoker knows, and that is a smoker never waits until they are out of cigarettes to go get more. And so that doesn't disprove anything along that theory at all. Two things. One, so Jamie had cigarettes at 7 p.m., but was worried he'd run out in a half hour. Two, we have forgotten that the clerk stated there was no cigarettes missing from the inventory. What were you doing on November 22, 1963, when President John Kennedy was shot and killed? At the risk of revealing my age, I can tell you that I was returning from a half day of kindergarten. I can tell you where I was sitting in my living room, what chair, and what it looked like, and I can tell you where my mom was sitting, where the TV was, and what the impact was, and what the effect was on my mom when we heard that news. And I suggest that many of you can give the same kind of details. Why? Because it's made an impression on you and it stayed with you, even though you didn't write it down. So I ask you, if somebody came up to you two days ago, two weeks ago, two years ago, or 20 years ago, and told you, I shot Bill Little, or I shot and killed anybody, I suggest each of you would remember that, because it would make an impact on you. Then why didn't the so-called confession witness come forward sooner? If you go to bed one night, and you look out your window, and the ground is clear, no snow. And then you wake up the next morning, and the ground is covered with snow. And if someone like Bill Moffat, Ed Palumbo, or Eddie Hammond come up to you and said it snowed last night, are you going to not believe them just because of their prior convictions? Are you going to say, nope, I know it wasn't on the ground when I went to bed. I know it is here when I got up. But these guys got prior convictions, so I can't believe it snowed last night. Of course you are not. Tired, overused argument, which doesn't fit the case at all. She's grasping at straws. But defense counsel has said the sheer number of witnesses here for crying out loud as a red flag. Frankly, there is no way to account for that kind of argument. How so? Now we know the state hid evidence and deals of pressure? Pretty sure he was right. There is something that neither defense attorney or the defendant can explain away, and that is the many faces of this defendant, Jamie Snow. The many faces of Jamie Snow explains exactly how Martinez can be so positive about his identification of the defendant. It's nonsensical. How can the many faces of Jamie Snow explain how Martinez ID'd him? I suggest to you that the defendant has never looked so closely well-groomed, well-shaven, close-cut shaven, hair so short. I will let you think about the obvious answer as to why there was a need to change. All I can say that it is apparent 
This defendant is still running and fleeing from the truth of who he is and what he has done. But you can look at all these faces, including the newest version, and what is the most common thread that runs through all of them. The defendant can change his hair color, the length. He can change his facial hair, and he can change how he dresses. But the one thing that he cannot change is his eyes. Funny, his eyes were never mentioned by star witness Danny Martinez until the trial, after how many times he'd seen them. Reasonable doubt is not something that you have to search for. It is not something that you have to be directed to. If a reasonable doubt truly exists in this case, it's going to find you. It will come to you in the form of your conscience. Guilting the jury into a verdict in the state's favor. We knew from police reports, interviews, and testimony that the state's witnesses' stories had changed over time. We now have ample evidence that the state pressured and gave deals to people to change their stories. Evidence that was hidden from Jamie prior to trial. Evidence the jury never heard. Ironically, the fact is that Jamie and Tammy Snow are the only ones whose stories have never changed for over a decade. Jamie was at home with his family on Easter Sunday. Well, we've all read through the closing arguments. Look, you know, we have over 140 pages here, with 80 pages coming from the state immediately. Um, for me, it was typical. Um, it was do everything you can to smear the defendant, throw everything you can at him. There's no rules. You can lie. You can say any, basically anything you want. I mean, as uh, we heard, she basically called him an insect, a maggot, a, a Nazi. I mean, you can say anything you want about him. And he has to sit there defenseless and listen to it. So I don't know if I have the most compelling uh, opinion on it because I, for me, I think it's typical. I think it's wrong. I don't think that the prosecutors should be able to stand up in a courtroom and tell lies, but that's the way the system works. So I think I'm a little jaded on it and just probably come off sounding too angry when I discuss closing arguments. So I don't know how you two feel about it. Well, I, I agree with Bruce. You know, definitely. She uses she uses a lot of quotes throughout the closing arguments. Um, she talks about God a lot. She talks about bad acts a lot. And she's basically smearing Jamie. And, you know, every single time she gets a chance, you know, she'll bring up testimony from someone else when she's talking about another witness that was bad, for example, she says over and over how Jamie beat somebody with a stick. And she'll say, well, he wasn't, she wasn't the one that he beat with a stick, but she said this. It really is typical. She just does everything she can to make him appear like this horrible person. I think in this situation too, um, and we talked about it in every episode uh, leading up to this, is how they stacked so much on top of each other. It overwhelmed the jury. And she kept talking about it in the closing arguments. How could so many people be telling this lie? How can they all corroborate together? And I really think it is compelling when you put on that that case to a jury, because I think there's just too much information. It overwhelms them. And they have that entire pile of you know, we can call it bullshit if you want, but all against Jamie. He's one person that got to defend himself against 
just this mountain of information, I think that just overwhelms the jury. And I think it's very difficult to overcome as a defendant. For myself, I'll admit these are the first closing arguments I've ever read a transcript of. And I was shocked. It was like an episode of Law and Order, which I always have been telling myself, oh, that's not true. That stuff really doesn't go on. The dramatics. No, it was incredibly dramatic. And um I thought she was really wicked and cunning and she was deliberate. She was masterful. She knew what she was doing the entire time. Like I could imagine her sitting at home making all these notes and, you know, even with (laughs) a murder board with a red string everywhere and, you know, making flashcards and practicing like this was a prepared speech. This wasn't off the cuff at all. She knew exactly what she was doing. Um, and it sh- shocked me even on, you know, the second page because she came up with this analogy that I never heard before. But she said Jamie was stealing the victim's sympathy. And that's how she started off in her intro, that this trial was about the victim and he's the one who died. He's the one who's a victim. But, you know, now we have Jamie trying to steal his sympathy and, you know, play that he's been um, wrongfully accused and that it's almost the jury's obligation from the get-go to make sure he can't steal the victim's sympathy. So that was our first tactic. So that was really shocking to me. And she was saying his compassion, that's justly Bill Little's. That's Bill Little's compassion. So you, you're, you're not allowed to have compassion for Jamie. Exactly. <laughs> that it was wrong, that it was somehow dirty to consider uh, that he was scared because he thought that he was being wrongfully accused. And then the other thing that she said that was so ironic was she defined that the defense had a pick and shake method for their presentation, that they were trying to convince the jury and everybody in the courtroom that if one witness doesn't fit, then you have to pick them out, shake them out and get rid of everything the witness said. Then that witness is deleted and doesn't matter, which I think all of us, even in the audience, believe that is true. But then she goes on and says, no, 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 that would be awful. That would be an awful tactic for you to consider because the law says you have to consider these individuals as a whole and what they contribute to the case. So it's legal for you to pick and choose what you want, actually, and you don't have to discard them. That would be flawed thinking. So every time they're talking about a witness and how the witness got it wrong. The witness contradicted themselves on the stand. She'll say, oh, well, that's the pick and shake method. And, you know, very condescendingly, like, you know, you can you can allow that. The defense is just picking and shaking. And she refers to it as a mosaic, you know. So she's saying, you, you know, she just hammers on, you've got to take this piece and this piece and this piece and this piece and put it together. And it all adds up. What the, the real irony is, is that in the courts above, which go through some of the appellate arguments, I believe, later on, but is is that they they they're not allowing that. You know, they're they're not allowing it to be a, a mosaic. They the courts above are picking and shaking. So if we discredit one witness, then they're saying, well, that doesn't matter because that was an important witness. Whereas he was convicted, he was, he was convicted on making it a mosaic. So the question is, how do you undo that in the higher courts? 
when he was actually convicted on this method and there was not one thing that convicted him. It was, was a mosaic. That's how the whole case was presented in closing arguments. I mean, throughout the case. Yeah. The, there are sections of the law and the instructions that they read to the jury that literally said, you have to consider, you, you're allowed to consider everything in context of all of the evidence. So he was convicted on the mosaic, like you said, and then now during a, appeals, he can't, he can't even talk about how there was a mosaic effect. That's not allowed. The other thing she did was I noticed, Tam, you caught on to this. And when I was reading the the PDF file with your highlights and you kept highlighting the word corroboration. And I started to notice that every time she would bring up a witness or a circumstance or, you know, it it was so convoluted, um, but this mosaic to build them together and get them to all fit, it could be two unrelated things that were completely circumstantial. And then she'd just say cooperation, like very smugly. Then she'd give another example and then end with cooperation. And it got to the point where cooperation was said over and over and over again to the point where it was almost like a Pavlov's dog thing where now the jury is going to associate her saying that with credibility. It fits. Here's another instance. It fits. It fits. It fits. And that was throughout the whole entire um, closing arguments. So, so she was really good at, at putting out those buzzwords. And, and just to backtrack a little bit, she says, don't let him get away with trying to steal the compassion and the justice that is due to the one and only true victim in this case, Bill Little not this defendant. So she'll use words like steal and take and these derogatory terms. And that really puts it in people's head. He's a thief. He's a this. He's a he's a bad person. Even using those types of words, I mean, stealing compassion, taking something away from someone. You know, she's she's, you know, using metaphors of of Jamie taking this person's life over and over again. It's almost a tactic. You're guilting the jury into you're telling them outright, you better not have any compassion for this evil person. Don't take anything away from the victim. If if you stop for one minute and think that he possibly didn't do it, you're stealing what's owed to the victim. So they bring up emotion and anger so that you think more about the actual crime than the evidence against the person who did it. So somebody has to pay. This kid was shot down at a gas station. We're angry about it. Somebody has to pay for it. And they're they're giving us this evil person to pay the price. So I think there's a lot of psychological work going on there with prosecutors because they just want to build up the anger with the jury so that they, they, it's almost at that point, the evidence isn't, isn't that important anymore. It's we have to, somebody has to pay for this crime and you better make sure justice is done for this victim. Don't forget about the victim. Yeah. And while we're talking about words that she was using the kind of corrupt the jury or coerce them into having a certain perception of Jamie. She keeps picking hideous things. Like she accuses him of verbal slithering. So a snake. And she keep, she's the one who keeps saying he's the one with the web of lies. So a spider. And then she has this quote she pulls out from a book to compare him to about him, about a wartime Nazi and that how a wartime Nazi is described as lying and trying to get out of his war crimes, but he keeps tripping over his lies. He can't get out of them anymore. I, you know, I couldn't believe that. I thought that was, that was so shocking to me that that somebody would ever think that was appropriate to 
take something as horrible as genocide in the entire an entire world war and then casually intertwine it into Jamie's trial. Right. Um, so what did you think, Bruce? I mean, talking about taking it to extremes, I mean it's it's obviously a ridiculous comparison, but I understand why she did it. I mean I get it. She has to paint him as a liar. But yeah, I think that that example was absolutely ridiculous. Not really shocking to me. I mean, I I don't get shocked by anything they say. It's just, how can you compare anything that happened in Jamie's case to Nazi Germany? I mean, it's just, it's ludicrous. It's dramatic. And and speaking of dramatic, I'm almost positive that um, I was looking in the Panagraph archives and found her when she was younger, maybe even in high school or college, where she was a big, big into drama like in the paper, in, in, in drama. So this even more so doesn't surprise me how dramatic she was being. They say that actors and attorneys, you know, trial attorneys, are, have very similar personalities frequently. And I just don't know. I mean, I, I can't get into the jurors, you know, the heads of the jurors. I just wonder how much of it they actually were really influenced by. I mean, I think the the entire case itself, the way they stack so many witnesses, I think that was more important than some of these words she used. I think I think she got a little over dramatic. I'm not sure how uh effective it was. It's hard to say. She washes them out so much with all the details, but then uses the dramatics to get their attention again. So she goes over, you know, that quote she says what book it's from and everything. Um it's from we can tell them the book Betrayal by Eli Rosenbaum and you know, about a Nazi scandal. But then she, after she goes on and on and on about this book, she ends it by saying, as the author of the passage said, if the pursuit of truth is relentless, the prevocator rarely triumphs. She say, she's basically charging them with a duty to be relentless so that Jamie can't triumph. So, you know, that's how she, she wraps it up and makes it, you know, an emotional thing for them. That's why I said they, she's guilting them into it, but it's, I don't think that's the right wording. What she's basically saying is, this is your duty to go in there. We have this victim. This kid was shot down. We've, we're giving you the person we said did it. Now go do your job. You know, you, th- there's no choice there. there. It's like the evidence at that point doesn't even matter anymore. It's we have to. This is what you have to do now. So at one point, she says that the witnesses finally now after nine years all came forward on this odyssey to tell the truth. So I was like so taken aback even when I heard that, though, because now she's calling this an odyssey. And then she continues to charge the jury with saying that now that this adventurous, heroic journey has been undertaken, you know, now it's their job to deliberate and return uh, the appropriate justice for Bill Little and Jamie Snow. So, I mean, she, she doesn't stop the entire time. It's over and over and over again. That's their duty to go do this. It's like she's giving them their marching orders. And it works. It's effective. Obviously. I mean, most people that go to trial in this country are found guilty. I mean, it's if you actually get to that point, your percentage of of acquittal is is low. It's very powerful. The prosecutors have a lot of power in the courtroom. I mean, it really does, and we see it all the time. And we certainly saw it in this case. Jamie did a fantastic job defending himself, and it wasn't enough. Tam wrote out, and you wrote out, and in, in some of these uh, um, introductions to the, the episode nineteen. He looked the jurors in the eyes. He he refuted every single witness. He had all of his ducks in a row. He knew the facts, and it wasn't enough. 
Yeah, and she also used the opportunity to go back and testify for the witnesses, you know, which was talked about in the episode, but I kind of wanted to wrap it up because we just heard on the last uh, bonus episode talking a lot about Mary Burns. Well, she used her closing arguments to talk about Mary Burns a lot. And it was unbelievable. She said that the reason why the Mary Burns testimony didn't make any sense was because Jamie used her as somebody to test drive his new theory on that he was so drunk and somebody else was driving and he didn't do it. He didn't have the weapon and that Mary Burns didn't believe him. So he abandoned that and then went with his alibi defense that he was home with his wife. So and then she's up there doing closing arguments, calling him a a stupid drunk, saying that he is the one who forgot he had that conversation with her and then had the audacity to put her on his witness list. And that's how she found her. And that's how this truth came out, because he's he's the one lying. And now he's been exposed. That's all fake. That's, you know, that's craziness. She made up that entire story from nowhere that wasn't set on the stand. It wasn't insinuated on the stand anywhere. And she, you know, she really used the opportunity to, <laughs> to, I, you know, I don't even know where she came up with that. That was really creative. Yeah. Well, at, at one point, I mean, she, she really contradicts herself though. I mean, if you think about it, because in one, on, in one way, she makes him out to be this evil shrewd, cunning kingpin who's making all of these people say whatever they, you know, whatever. I mean, she did that throughout the trial. They were all afraid. That's what she's saying. Oh, well, nine years later, they weren't afraid anymore. He was gone. He was in Florida. So their fear lessened, you know, that's why they came, all came back at once right before the trial. And, you know, but in another way, she calls him, you know, a drunk idiot. He's, he doesn't know what he's saying and he's trying to cover it up. So, I mean, she, she really contradicts herself in the way that that she presents him. Bruce, you were, you said a few episodes ago, um, how Jamie's truth never changes. After 20 years, he tells the same story with the same details. And, you know, we went over his trial testimony and, everything was the same. And, you know, even if there were some things about it that were messed up with that Mary Burns situation, I mean, we hammered him home on that. And, you know, he responded to that. So he's always been the same. But then she says during her closing arguments that it's just the opposite, that now the jury has seen him take the stand and that, you know, he can't escape the truth. The truth never changes. He's forgotten all his lies. And that's why he can't keep up with the story anymore. And but she has no examples of that. I don't know what she what what is her big gotcha moment because there wasn't anything like that i mean unless she's going to go with the whole convoluted freedom thing and changing robbery to murder but um there was nothing like that so but th- she puts that editorial value into it and i wonder if that kind of makes the jury look back on his testimony and think oh yeah he you know he what he did come off as fumbling he did come off as uh, lying he did come off as facetious so what do you think about that? I think in the bonus episode, if you listen to what, what Jamie, you know, his follow-up answers to questions, you can see how easy it is to cherry-pick information about, you know, details and make things sound different than they really are. When you go back and explain it, um, it's a totally different story. Like it's not hard to do, and especially like with the Freedom Gas Station and 
Jamie's like, um, he said, people don't even remember. They don't even realize that they they got the guy that did that and he's convicted and he testified before a grand jury. That's all left out. So many details, so much information. I think it's it's really easy to get things convoluted over time because there's little bits and pieces coming from everywhere. And I thought Jamie did a really good job of explaining some of that in his follow-up answers to the questions. But when you when you listen to him talk about that, I think it's a, a good example of how easy it is to mix everything up and have, I don't know how a jury can possibly keep up with everything. Let's move on to the the, the first degree murder charges when she's explaining what they can find him guilty of. Uh, well, she says, first of all, that the defendant or or one for whose conduct he's legally responsible performed the acts which caused the death of Bill Little. And the second proposition is that when the defendant did so, he or one for whose conduct he is legally responsible intended to kill or do great bodily harm to William Little, or he knew that his acts created a strong probability of death or great bodily harm to William Little, or he is legal, or he was committing the offense of armed robbery at the time he committed the acts which killed William Little. So, I mean, she's going on and it's like, okay, so if you can't get him for this, get him for this. If you can't get him for this, get him for this. If you can't do, you know, you can think about this. You can do this. You know, you can charge him with murder for all of these reasons. Right. She you laid know? it all out there. Him out. <laughs> even if he isn't, even if he went into the gas station, not intending to kill him, if he killed him during the process of an armed robbery, it's the same thing as if he went in there with the intention of shooting him in the first place. Yeah, but listen to the way you read that, Sam. Like, I couldn't even follow you, and I've got the paper in front of me highlighted, and I'm reading as you're saying it, and I can't even comprehend it unless I read it three times over. You know, I'm sure the audience (laughs) couldn't follow that whole paragraph. So imagine, you know, how the jury felt. If you take a jury, though, and you say, say a guy went into the gas station just with the intent of shooting him and killing a person and leaving. It's no different than if you went in there to rob him and ended up shooting him and killing him. The crime is still murder. Explaining accountability, but and and then she even goes on. Now the second proposition is a long one. So you know what she's doing, I think, is telling the jury, you've got all kinds of options to charge him with murder here. It's not as simple as when you know they give a jury instruction and say, okay, this is accountability, and this is this, and right. this is this. You know, she's going on and on and on about all of these different ways. And if he did this and if he did this, you know, and that just makes me think, you know, she's just leading them. She's saying, you know, there there are all kinds of ways. Even if you're confused about one thing, don't worry. We have a whole list of things you can pick from here. Just pick one. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And then at the end, like when she's closing off, then she tells them she's going to pray for them. (laughs) <laughs> so she starts reading another quote from a book um, from the 1800s. She reads this from um, Daniel Weber, that God has given them the grace to perform their duty and obligation to decide the case. So she's going to pray that God helps them during their deliberations. And then that's where she close off, <laughs> closes off. And, um, you know, it's just. And what is she doing again? That's the same tactic. She's. Telling them what their duty is, what they're supposed to do. Yeah, this but is what you have to do. Isn't there separation of church and state? Like, I, you know, it's it was it's just baffling. He's not giving them an option of even thinking that he could be not guilty. Their job is to get a conviction for the victim. Only think about the victim. This is your job. 
Now go do it. Yeah. You know, pumping them up like, you know, being a juror is a heroic thing if you're right. on the side of the victim. That's a, a great point as well. She's emboldening them, you know, to maybe feel like they have the power to, to accomplish something. Instead of just looking at the evidence and making a, a, you know, a decision about another person's life who's on the, you know, Jamie's there fighting for his life. And she's reading Bible verses, trying to pump them up, giving them a duty, you know. I I get how it works. It's just she really did a, a she did a good job. She did. I you know, I couldn't believe it. Um, but I really appreciated reading those closing arguments because you got to see who she is as a person. And a lot of the times we think, um, some of us who might be a little bit more merciful or a little bit nicer might be like, oh, well, this is somebody's job. And, you know, they, she just wants to be, she's, uh, you know, a DA and she gets promoted, she gets selected, and then eventually she wants to become a judge. This is just a stepping stone for her. Maybe she's not an awful person. Maybe they got it wrong. But then you read this and you're like, no, this was deliberate. She, she did a lot of research on this. This was a lot of psychological value put into this. Like, this was like menacing. This was not you know, some pile up in the system. This was all on purpose. And, she, you know, she didn't knew exactly what she was doing and it was vengeful and it was nasty. And right. she liked it. She liked it. Sadly, if you ask a lot of prosecutors, they're going to say she's just doing her job. I think that's the culture of it all. Yeah, I don't think it's her job to, you know, <laughs> read books from the 1800s, but she certainly made it. The defense responded. I mean, it, was, it definitely was like nowhere near as long as her. But um, I was really surprised um, considering Hitzel. I was really surprised about, you know, his demeanor. So what do you think about it? What do you guys think? He certainly wasn't very passionate. I, I felt like, you know, and I didn't. It, it's really hard. to. It's so much better when it's on tape because you can hear the inflection in their voice and and those kinds of things. I could see him coming off as either boring or flippant, you know, like um, he was just kind of like, well, you can't, you can't, you know, this is zero, you know, there, there's zero evidence. Here's the breakdown of the witnesses and here's the breakdown of the evidence. There's zero evidence. It didn't seem to me like he was connecting. He was more like I would think preachy, kind of condescending is the way that he came off to me, you know, like, you can't do this. You can't do this because this is the evidence. I mean, he was right, but that doesn't make him connect with anybody on the jury. It was just kind of an arrogant argument to me. I think that's, that's kind I, of how it sounded to me as well. I also think it's a tough position. You're telling a jury, you can't do this. This is, and then you have somebody else saying, you need to be a hero and you need to, this is what you need to do. I think it's, the prosecution's argument is easier. I was very surprised because he was so calm. So it was almost like he was trying to neutralize the situation and bring them back down to reason. That's how I interpreted it because he was very calm and dry and he was all about the rules. And he emphasized immediately in the introduction that they should disregard any closing arguments made about beliefs because Tina Griffin wasn't there. So her beliefs can't help them. And that Jamie is presumed innocent. And he said he was going to, you know, hammer that home and he'll probably say it 50 times before he closes. So I was surprised given the way Pitzel's acted before. It did seem like he actually must have had notes and planned this out. I know he had notes because he methodically went through like seven different star witnesses and laid out all their convictions. He actually pulled out pieces of paper from Detective 
Thomas's switching robbery for murder, his interrogation, and show the jury how it was only a half paragraph on one page. He, you know, he did that. But yeah, he was, you know, he was really boring. And he did hammer home, which I thought was really good, that this is a case with no physical evidence at all. And that he empathizes with the jury because now their job is so difficult because they all they're left to do now is to decide who they believe, if what words they believe. You know, they have nothing else to fall back on. Then he went in even at the end telling them, you know, I thought he kind of made a fatal error here at the very end because he told them that, you know, it started off good saying it's their job and their duty to render a verdict no matter how uncomfortable it might be for them in in regards to the victim, you know, as in not giving Bill a little justice after this prosecutor has just charged you with that duty over and over again, no matter how uncomfortable it is, it's your duty to give the right one. But then he goes and he says, justice doesn't require a guilty verdict, even if you think he did it, you have to be able to prove that he did it. And if you conclude that you don't even know what happened, then that's also a not guilty verdict. And, you know, it's just like, oh, my God, why would you say that? Like, what you just made such a great point and that was your closing sentence and it was wonderful but then you said even if you think my client did it you could still say he's not guilty yeah it <laughs> kind know? of deflated everything he said previously prior to that once mm-hmm. he said that it kind of gave them a door opened the door for them to just dis- disregard everything else he said well, well what got me was uh was on her rebuttal she said um, when he was, you know, because he really hammered home, you know, there's zero physical evidence. There's no physical evidence in this case, basically that the eyewitnesses and he used that term loosely supposed eyewitnesses. I think he said none of their descriptions matched and he felt like he discredited them wholly. And he was just saying, look what you're left with. But what, got me was um, when she was talking about, I think she was talking about Kalal and the physical evidence. They could have worn gloves. They could have not worn shoes. And I was like, are you kidding me that someone went in there barefooted? (laughs) She goes, I find it so ironic that he's talking about lack of physical evidence when we had the forensic investigator on the stand for an hour and he pestered him for an hour about physical evidence. So what is he talking about? They were wearing gloves. That's why there were no fingerprints. And it was like, but Pitzel brought up how they didn't even fingerprint the emergency call button. So they can't even prove it was Bill Little that hit the, the call button. Like we still don't know that to this day. So, you know, it was, it was just crazy that she said that Exactly. Like, I can't even describe it. It was just nonsense. When she said that about the shoes, though, I was like, okay. So she's saying that the suspect didn't yeah. have shoes on. And then, Tammy, <laughs> let's talk about how you've brought up before. The ever-changing faces of Jamie Snow. That was in her, that was all the way towards the end of her rebuttal. Um, and how he can change his weight, his hair color, his hair length, his facial hair, but he can never change those eyes. You know, I know that really gets you. So what do you think about that? I, I mean, I've always been very troubled by that, that, um, that part of her closing, because uh, first of all, she threw up a bunch of mug, mug shots from prior things, no matter what, you know, if he, he was arrested for gotten a bar fight. You know, so it was any mugshot. So that that right there makes him look like a career criminal. That was so, so suggestive that I think it it was 
I, I mean, I, I just don't see how that, how she got away with being able to do that. So she throws all of them up and then the composites up and well, he does look like one of them. He may look like one of them. And, and I don't know if she said it in her opening arguments or closing arguments. I don't remember, but she said, probably people in this room look like this person. You have to look at the similarities. You have to look at the similarities, not the way they look, they look different, but you have to look at the similarities. And she even pointed out, you know, that Pitzel, Pitzel's doesn't even want to look at the, look at the, the pieces that make sense. He doesn't want to look at the evidence. He doesn't want to follow the evidence. But when she threw those up and said the many faces of Jamie Snow uh, over years and how he looked different over the years, I, I think that that was completely suggestive. And I know that they can do whatever they want, but there's some things that they can't do in closing arguments. And I, I think that that is arguable, but just because of the fact that it just made him look like, a you know, they're sitting there looking at that going, well, what was he arrested for there? What was he arrested for right. there? What, you know, and I, and that was so, that was so un- incredible to me. I mean, that was shocking to me that she was able to get away with doing that when it's a case that wasn't even brought up. Right. She's showing pictures of things that had no relevance at all to the trial, but man, it, it's powerful when you see, like you said, it made him look like a career criminal. I mean, it, it worked, but it, it, I, there are things that should not be allowed. You should not be able to throw up a whole bunch of pictures like that. I mean, it's, it is suggestive. And it, um, if I'm on the jury, I'm thinking, wow, I mean, how many times is this guy arrested? And, and you, and you know, what wasn't thrown up was the records, the lengthy records, you know, of every single time these other people that testified against him got in trouble. Yeah. They talked a little bit about it, but Pitzel didn't even have all of the evidence of their, for example, at Hammond's federal case. They didn't, they didn't talk about that. We didn't know about that because she told him not to talk about it. Right. They didn't say that Bruce Rowland was arrested for a DUI between Susan's trial and Jamie's trial. I mean, another, he was initially arrested for a DUI and that's when all of a sudden he had all of this evidence, but he was arrested. He was, he, they let him out on bond. That was like his fourth DUI. And they let him out on bond and let him leave the state. And then viewed him as credible. And he got arrested for another DUI during that time. And that's when Katz told him, well, we can't give you parole, you know, anymore. So, you know, it's going to have to be a concurrent sentence. (laughs) So he got, you know, a whole lot of time knocked off. And that's the other thing that all of these people didn't know was all of the other pieces you know, that were left out of, of these witnesses, the deals that they got, the pressures that they were right, under. Everything we know that now. we know now. Right. It was right. not known at trial. It's easy to forget about that, talking about the case now, how much the jury did not know then. Well, Pitzel tried to explain it to them, and he did a really good job. I don't know if you guys picked up on this, but he used it as the squirrel metaphor because Tina Griffin says, why would all these people lie about something like this and you know the reason why they remember so well after nine years is because nobody forgets talking about a murder and then you know Pitzel comes out in his closing arguments and says no these people they're like squirrels preparing for winter and they have some nugget of information that's like a nut 
and they're going to sit on it for years and years and years and bury it. And they're not going to tell anybody. And it's not because they don't want to get involved. It's because they want to save it and use it for later. And then he's, that's when he gets into bringing up all these people's convictions and what their motives were and, you know, things like that. So I really like that. I do think these people were a bunch of squirrels. You know, at least he didn't, I guess the squirrel's a rodent, but <laughs> he didn't go as far as to be calling them uh, bugs and Nazis. <laughs> Well, I think it was, you know, and I, and I did like that he, you know, that he brought that up because they're, you know, they, they, he also brought up the fact that there, that it was so much more time later. And then all of a sudden, everybody has all of this information. He said, no, nobody ran to them. And I've always said this to Jamie. I mean, where were these people in 1991? These people that said, oh my God, there was just a murder. It was all over town. It was huge news. And you didn't see anybody running to them, running to the police. It was only, it was only well after. And, and when the worst part for Jamie, I think that really sticks with him. And we talked about this previously was when she said the truth never changes, but he's the only one that his story hasn't changed. Because when you look back at, at these police reports and when they were first interviewing people, for example, again, Bruce Rowland, he was like, I wrote him back. I know I didn't have enough information. I'm telling you, if Jamie would have confessed to him, he would have had enough information. He said, I know, I know what I gave you wasn't strong enough, but I'm always willing to help you out. I'm always willing to do what needs to be done. Their stories were not the same. They, and we know from, you know, we dissected this in previous episodes on each person. You know, this is what they said in their police reports. This is what they said in the interview. You know, Bill Moffat, he argued with them about seeing a car. See, and she used this in her closing arguments as well. He argued with them early on. I know I, he didn't say anything about seeing anybody out in the parking lot. He didn't, but he, they had to have that peace that he saw somebody in the parking lot. And what does he say when he gets on the stand? He saw somebody in the parking lot. And that's what scared Jamie because he was arguing with them on the tape. He was like, I didn't know. I didn't, he didn't say anything about that. I can't help you there. He said it was the flyers that he was afraid of, you know? So she did this it, with we, several witnesses and mm-hmm. used the closing arguments to go back in time and correct their testimony. And she did it with Randy Howard, too, because Randy Howard was the hostile witness. When he got on the stand, he said, I never thought it would get this far. So, you know, my, of course, my story is different now. I never thought I'd be here today. And he would not say that Jamie had admitted to the murder to him or anything like that. He said that Jamie didn't say that. But now when she's in her closing arguments, she says that's circumstantial evidence that Randy Howard is lying now because he wants to be a good friend and that you can believe that from the words he said and the way he acted on the stand, that that proves that he really did tell Jamie that he did it. And now Randy Howard's lying today. What the and hell? Then she, and then she goes to the tape. She refers to the tape and said, well, he said this, he said this on the tape and this on the tape, but he said some crazy shit on that tape. I mean, he was saying that uh, he thinks that um, Tammy Snow was having an affair with Bill Little. And that's why that's and that, and that maybe that's why Jamie shot him. She knew that, you know, that 
he knew there was something going on there. And I mean, he's, he's just talking all kinds of crazy stuff. Well, none of that made it in, not the crazy stuff. You know, it's just this one, Hey bro, I fucked up. I shot the kid out of this whole 30 minute long crap of a tape where he's just saying all of this outlandish stuff. And I noticed that when she does this and she goes back and starts to rewrite the testimony and tell it a different way, I went back and flipped through our snow notes to see how she addressed it at trial. And she doesn't. So like they spent so much time on Bill Gaddis, both of them during their closing arguments. And she says, oh, he's he's such a holy man. And the defense tried to make fun of him and put him down for his beliefs in God. And he's just a good man coming forward with the truth today. Um. And then she, you know, why would he ever lie about something like that? And they even brought his brother on the stand just to trash him and say terrible, terrible things about him. So I'm like, yeah, they did bring the brother on the stand. We do have his testimony. I go back and I flip through the testimony and she asked him one question and that was it. So it's like when it comes down to it, when it's going to be on the stand, it's going to be the testimony. It's going to be the facts. It has to be legal. She doesn't want anything to do with it. But then now in the closing arguments, it's like, I feel like she that day started writing down all her thoughts and her ideas on that testimony and then just literally saved it for closing arguments instead of um, redirecting and asking questions. But when you, when you, when you talk about the corroboration, I mean, particularly with Bill Gaddis, there was none. The only person that said she might have known anything about it was his wife and they didn't call her to the stand. I mean, there was four people and then a bunch of girls in the in the front room. So they had all of these people. Granted, two of them were dead, but they still had three, you know, other people. And they I don't even know how how they let him on. Like there was nothing corroborated with his testimony, whatever. And it's the same way with the others. And it's very, very thin the way that they were um, supposedly corroborated. But they weren't. It was like you know, uh, well, it makes sense that Jamie would have been up there um, at seven or whenever it was to go get a pack of cigarettes. And then they wouldn't give him a pack of cigarettes when Gutierrez was there. And then he went back down to a party at Whitmer's. But, you know, and then how would Bruce know Bruce that he went to Whitmer's, Whitmer's because Bruce isn't, you know, Bruce isn't related to, you know, to Gutierrez. They're not talking. But they made that fit. They are the ones that came up with that theory about the Whitmers. And then they bring Brian Whitmer in and he's pissed off and he's like, I don't know anything about. I mean, I was in jail. Were they supposed to just have this quick party while I was in jail at my house? They just brought him into it for some reason, because maybe he's the only bad actor that lived close to the gas station, I guess. But they didn't know they did get along, I guess. Reading this stuff on paper, it's so unbelievable to, you know, see it out in text and be able to take your time with it and go through it. We really get a good opportunity to dissect it and go through it. And the jury didn't get that, though. They're just getting all this thrown at them. And, you know, this is 150 pages almost. I mean, it must have taken at least two hours minimum. Um, I think they might have even broken for lunch. But when we're when she's going on and on about these people, you know, for a little bit of comedic relief here, I'm going through the papers and hearing what she had to say about Bill Gaddis and everything and how we are all supposed to believe him now, she says, because 
He was never sent to prison. He doesn't have any criminal connections. He's a man who believes in God and he has a good, you know, a good reputation for truth and honesty. And then Jamie just writes in the, uh, the margin child molester. So, you know, that's like, that's true. We had that whole episode on, you know, how he got custody of those children. And, you know, that's why he had to flee the state because what was going on with him at home. And, you know, she literally gets up and that was not allowed to be talked about during the trial. So during the trial, they don't get to ask him about why he ran out of Illinois anything about that. His brother doesn't get to say the truth about why he doesn't really like him. And then she gets to have her cake and eat it too. And, you know, go over in the closing arguments with that. That's just frustrating because it's like, she just, I mean, you know, and Bruce is right. They just say whatever, you know, whatever they want, but she is bringing in things that are not facts of the case that they did not review in the case. She's just throwing everything she can against the wall. And it's disgusting because she's not interested in truth or justice or anything. She always thought Jamie did that. And she was not willing to look at anybody else or any other evidence that said otherwise. She's She was on this case from almost day one. She was there. She was there when he was arrested. They went to Florida and interviewed a bunch of people. I mean, she was... She was right there trying to get him, even when he did his polygraph in 1994. There was a memo where she wrote to Charles Renard, just uh, here's the questions I think we should ask him. And we just need to we just need to find out if he was the lookout guy or the shooter and then made some crack about make sure there's not anything in his shoes. Because did you see that Law and Order episode or he might have watched that Law and episode where a guy passed a polygraph because he had something in a shoe and yeah, I and a I pin thought, in your shoe and it's supposed to <laughs> affect your nerves so that you can lie. It's all so BS. that was 90, 94. That was three years after the crime. She had been chasing him this whole time. Uh, regardless of all the leads that they had, all the alternative suspects that we still don't know. So for example, the two dudes who they picked out in a mugshot the night of the crime, we don't know. There's no police report on them. There's no nothing where they went and interviewed those dudes. And that's who Danny Martinez picked out. Says between these two. Well, we'll go over the alternative suspects. But there's a there's people that are uh, a lot higher on our list than with evidence against them than Jamie Snow is. And they just ignored that. Which just means that they just they went with what she said. They just believed it. Whether it fits or not, she told them over and over and over again that it did. So they go back and say, well, she said it fits. I guess it fits. You know, we know it doesn't fit. I think we have a lot of information now that they didn't have then, too. So I think it's a lot different looking at it today. I mean, if what, what, what would that jury have done if they had all this information we have now about these witnesses? I don't know how they could have convicted him, especially with the you know, with the deals. It and would the have been letter. a completely different outcome. And like yeah. you said earlier, how there weren't, this was a big deal in Bloomington. There was a kid shot in a gas station and there wasn't a whole bunch of people running to the police department with information because they didn't have it. What we ended up with was a bunch of desperate people in trouble with the law that needed deals. They weren't there. I mean, they're, that's why there weren't people running to the police station after that crime. They didn't have any information. And now all of a sudden, nine years later, everybody has a story. 
Yeah. And why do they have a story? You have to look at their story. It's because they needed something. Yeah. And what people don't understand is, is over the years we've gotten FOIAs and we got them from um, the TBI. And there was like 600 leads in the life of the, in the life of this case. And the comment you made it where you said that, you know, I'll do whatever I need to do to help you. I just want to help. You have to follow that with just let me know what's, you know, what's in it for me. Let me know what to say. Yeah. What do I get? What do I get for saying what you want me to say? You know, that's really what this all comes down to. But I think it's it's really important to note, like you said, that right after the crime occurred, there weren't all these people running with information to try to help solve the case. Because they Uh-oh. didn't have it. They, they didn't have the information. It wasn't there. They... The police had to go out and find des- desperate people to put, to, you know, to stack this case, and that's what they did. Only after they were in trouble, they were dragging people out of prison, and then made it look like a a parade of people saying that he right. confessed. I mean, it's obvious in the, you know, in the in the in the notes because they were pulling records of who 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 Jamie's friends were in prison, who Jamie's enemies were in prison, and who his cellmates were. Anybody he was in prison with at all. Right. And that's who they targeted. And the characters of these witnesses weren't analyzed like Jamie's character was. People didn't didn't know anything about these people. And they all said, every single person that testified against him in this case said they didn't get anything. And we still have all of that reward money that has not been accounted for where, which multiple witnesses that testified against him mentioned it, you know, it went in their police tapes, you know, I'm not doing this for the reward money. Ha ha ha. Wink, wink, nod, nod. They, they were talking, you know, they, they were talking about reward money in there. They obviously knew, knew there was reward money. Right. And then we found, you know, as you've seen in previous episodes, deals that they got or pressure that they were under. And none of that was mentioned at trial. I mean, it's been infuriating the whole time, breaking down each witness and as we go through every episode. But I think looking at the closing arguments kind of wraps the whole thing up and just shows you how awful this entire thing was. I think that's kind of the icing on the cake to show you exactly how bad this went. You know, not just breaking down each individual witness, but this just puts it all together and shows you how this went wrong. And on the thinnest of evidence, um, they just wrote a story and made things fit together, their narrative, and and told people what to say. Well, the other thing is, if you didn't believe us before, you know, thinking, well, this is a conspiracy and, you know, all these people are in on it. And, you know, Jamie's even said a couple of times, um, you know, they all picked me for it. They all wanted me for it. It was all planned. They were... they all followed their orders and, you know, collaborated and did did this together for me. Um, And I think he even said that he heard Charles Renard, um, you know, heard a story about him telling somebody that, you know, we know he didn't do it, but somebody has got to take the fall for it and it's going to be him. So, you know, if you don't believe us and you think that we're bullshitting, you know, how could all these people get together and and want to do this to somebody. I mean, you can just read these closing arguments yourself. The 
the maliciousness is in there. The intent is in there. It's purposeful. It was a very, very careful. So this was no accident. You don't get 150 pages of closing arguments by accident. Right. It really does lay out the whole story that we've been saying since the beginning of the podcast. If you read through the closing arguments, you can see what we've been talking about. It's all there. What I wanted to say is over the years, and I've talked to several of these people, they did not believe that that their testimony would convict Jamie and put him away for life. Not the the one each person didn't know that there were four or five others just like them. That's a really so, good point too. We've heard that a, a few different witnesses have said that. I I never thought this was going to be important. They did they said that hey, I was just there to, you know, to get my deal or I was pressured. I didn't want to be in seg or I wanted fucking visits with my girlfriend. Right. You know, in county jail. That's a really they, good point. The, they didn't really realize the weight of what they were doing. Not that it takes them off the hook. It's just, it shows you how they were manipulated. Yeah, I've always said it falls at the state's feet because of the, solely because of the lies, you know, the, the tactics that they used, the evidence that they hid, and the, and the fact that they were dragging people out of prison to come testify against him. And it's very obvious, but it was the volume. It was the volume of, of people. And another thing, I I don't know how many pages she used on Danny Martinez, but they always say in, in the higher courts of Danny Martinez, he wasn't, he wasn't a a big, you know, he's one of those witnesses that they say, well, he wasn't, uh, a critical witness. Isn't that amazing? Their star witness went to somebody who's not important anymore. But, you know, in the appeals. Not, that makes me insane. Yeah, that was their that was their key guy, star witness. Oh no, he doesn't matter now. Now that he's been discredited, we don't need him. So they they rewrite the trial. They rewrite the trial. He was the star witness. He was a star witness in all the papers. You know, I, what what if they knew? What if the jury knew? that shortly before trial, they had visited him, I think, or had drug him up to the station at least seven times. Yeah. So in trial, they make it out to where, oh, well, he didn't make this ID, you know, then, and he didn't make this ID in another three years. And then all of a sudden he made this ID uh, in the state's attorney's office. That's the, They were badgering him. They were bringing him in. They called it trial prep. But it wasn't trial prep. Why are they bringing him to the police station seven times? Right. And in the company of Jeff Pilo, who was another material witness in the same room at the same time, all of them, what were they talking about? And the jury doesn't know any of that was that ever happened. They don't, you know, they're None of it. it. Well, I think that what we need to remember here, what we want the audience to remember is that we're not saying this was a manufactured case, that this was something that, you know, was just completely made up to, you know, destroy somebody and it's all a bunch of lies, blah, 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 blah. No, this was an engineered case. That's the difference. This was all done behind the scenes by the state. All these little snippets of all these different people, like you were just saying, bringing all the repetition with bringing in Danny Martinez seven times. And that was all highly sophisticated engineering to get a final result, to get their final product. So, you know, it's not as simple as um, 
you know, these are some sick people from Bloomington who, you know, just wanted to get out of jail and they just didn't have any regard for Jamie or his children. They're just, you know, snakes. And we're going to tell you all about all these bad people and what they did to Jamie. It's not just about that. It's not about lazy cops. It's not about, you know, uh, mean prosecutors who want to get promotions. It's about the engineering, I think, and how this was all meticulously done um, with no regard for either Jamie or Bill Little. That's why I say it lies at the state's feet, because even the fact that they offered deals or that they gave deals to people and then covered it up, I mean, that's wrong for that person to take that deal and to falsely testify, but they could not have done it without the consent of the state, period. You know, the state gave that offering. They planned it. You know, they they had their tools. They knew what worked. and. All of them were, uh, you know, cats and barkets. They were all, they, they knew what they had to do. Everybody knew their part. They knew their role. You know, it was a seamless team of people that pulled this off and, you know, got what they, what they wanted in the end. It pisses me off. (laughs) I think it is interesting though. I mean, uh, in closing arguments, the state is, challenging the jury not to fail Bill Little. And Mm. in the end, it was really the state that failed Bill Little. We invite any witness featured on the Snow Files podcast to come on the show to give their point of view or to clarify anything that they think might have been misstated. In episode 20, we heard prosecutor Tina Griffin wrap up the state's case in over 100 pages of closing arguments. She was calculated, dramatic, and eager. She compared Jamie to a snake, a spider, and a Nazi. She charged the jury to find justice for the victim only and prayed for their grace. Jamie's lawyer responded to all of this in half the time, presenting only the facts. Frank Pitzel reminded the jury that this was a case with no physical evidence, and the jury's only task was to decide who they believed. He pleaded that if they wouldn't trust the state's witnesses with their car keys, they shouldn't trust them with Jamie's life. After 11 hours of deliberations, they returned a guilty verdict. We wonder if the jury was overwhelmed with information and defaulted to Tina Griffin's version of events. If you have any information that may help Jamie, please call the tip line at 888-710-SNOW. There is a $10,000 reward for any information leading to a new trial or the exoneration of Jamie Snow. The tip line is free and confidential. Want to join the Jamie Snow support team? Become a patron for as little as $1 a month. Just go to snowfiles.net and click on Be My Patron on Podbean. All donors will have our undying appreciation and acknowledgement on the show. The highest tier donors will be invited to host a QA segment. Funds are used to cover our administrative costs and to keep Jamie in the media. The drama didn't end with the jury verdict, and Jamie soon found himself single-handedly arguing for a fair trial yet again at sentencing. That's next time on Snowfiles. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget, if you live in the Illinois area, please, please, please join us for the hearing on the discovery motion set for September 8th 
at 1.30 p.m. at the McLean County Law and Justice Center in Bloomington, Illinois. It's really important to show support for Jamie, for Jamie's family, and for his new attorney, Lauren Myerskoff Mueller. And if you have any questions about the motion or any of the issues with the documents being withheld, please post it on our social media or visit snowfiles.net and drop us a line or email. And thanks again for listening. We will see you on Wednesday.